We would like to welcome you to the Free Speech Movement Educational Program Series at UC Berkeley. Um, I'm Melissa Martin, and I'm the co-chair along with my colleague Shannon Monroe here of the Free Speech Movement Educational Programs Committee. The FSM educational programs at the UC Berkeley Library are designed to educate, engage students, faculty, staff, and visitors with the issues of the free speech movement and the wide range of activities the movement helped to inspire, including contemporary expressions of free speech activism and social change. We hope to inform and entertain as well as engender debate and discussion on wide range of issues. And this year we have a new group of committee members. Um, so I was just would like to ask everyone on the committee to stand up. And if you have any questions after the talk, please feel free to, you know, come up to one of us, and we'll we'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. Um, our committee is made up of a group of library staff who are passionate about free speech. We enjoy working with students especially and welcome student groups and others to submit applications for programs to be held in the Free Speech Movement Cafe. Information on how to propose a program is available on, our, um, on the library website. Um, and it's a little hard to navigate, but um, it's under About and also the event. So you can just search under um, FSM programs, Free Speech Movement programs. So I'd like to hand it over to Shannon. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, so tonight we have um, a great event in honor of Constitution Day. That is an event that we have to sponsor every year. And so I'd like to introduce Professor Daniel Farber. Uh, professor Farber is the show Sato Professor of Law at the UC Berkeley Law School. He is also the faculty director of the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. Professor Farber also serves on the editorial board of Foundation Press. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a life member of the American Law Institute. He is the editor of Issues in Legal Scholarship and the author of 18 books, including Research Handbook on Public Choice and Public Law, Judgment, Calls, Politic, Politics, and Principle in Constitutional Law, as well as Retained by the People, the Silent Ninth Amendment and the Rights Americans Don't Know They Have, as well as others. Please welcome Professor Farber. Thanks. So uh, my talk tonight is going to be more uh, about the sort of public debate and controversy part of uh, the um, FSM Cafe's uh, and speaker series than it is about the First Amendment, although I'm happy to talk about the First Amendment too. But uh, it seems to me, uh, as you may know, we have a president who's somewhat controversial. Um, and uh, I thought it would be um, maybe useful to talk about some of the constitutional issues there, uh, because I know they're on a lot of people's minds these days. So what I'm going to do really is in the lecture part of it, it's going to be kind of academic, um, uh, although hopefully not uh, dull. But what I want to do is just give some background on the constitutional ground rules, talk about a couple of the major issues the Supreme Court's dealt with in recent years, and then hopefully leave a lot of time for discussion uh, because there's a lot to talk about. 
<laughs> so I'm going to start uh, with some short background about presidential powers. Uh, what can the president do or not do? Putting aside so much individual rights issues, uh, that is putting aside cases where the Bill of Rights is involved. And then I'll talk about um, some of the most uh, significant recent disputes about presidential power and, and individual rights. Uh, and then I hope that we will all have a chance to talk because that's a lot more fun than just listening to me. So I've actually written a book about Lincoln and the Constitution, and I kind of wanted to start with this as an example of why it might not be a good idea to take the obvious solution of just not having presidents that have very much power. Um, and the, the reason, I think, for not going that direction is sometimes you really need somebody who can act decisively in an emergency. Um, and Lincoln, for me, is sort of the paradigm case. Um, the South uh, seceded from the Union and fired on Fort Sumter while Congress was not in session. And in those days, it took people quite a while to get to Washington. Um, and so Lincoln took action on his own. And here are some of the things he did. Um, he called out the militia, which is allowed under something called the Militia Act. Uh, and he ordered a blockade. Uh, a blockade under international law at the time was an act of war. Still is an act of war, I think, under international law, but you don't see as many of them these days because technology and the world have changed. Uh, but in the 19th century, that was a very big deal, and um, that really uh, was equivalent to starting to shoot. He also, and this gets more to the individual rights issues, suspended habeas corpus. Habeas is the legal procedure that allows someone to challenge they're being detained by the government. Uh, he suspended that in a fairly limited area at the beginning of the war. Congress later approved that, and over time it expanded a lot. Uh, there were also military trials of both Confederate soldiers for violating the rules of war uh, for civilians who were blowing things up uh, behind Union lines and so forth. So, this raises a lot of very dramatic questions about individual rights and the Constitution. Um, but I think it also shows why, if the president had not had the power to respond, by the time that Congress got organized, came back, got its act together, uh, you know, the South could have been long gone. So our problem is that sometimes we have a crisis and we really need the president to step in because there really isn't anybody else who can take that kind of action. But the more discretion we give the president to deal with emergencies, the greater the chances of abuse. Right? So it's sort of a trade-off. You give more power, you're taking more of a risk of abuse. And less Less power, less risk of abuse, but less ability to respond in an urgent situation where Congress doesn't have time to intervene. So that's what courts are kind of wrestling with, is how do you strike some kind of balance? Uh, often in situations where it's very hard for courts to find out the actual facts of what's going on, um, you know, 
depends on intelligence information and who knows what that courts are not really part of. And what we'll see is courts try to maintain a balance, but it, I don't think it's a very steady balance over time. The court sometimes seems to give the president close to a blank check and other times really jumps in and tries to limit potential abuses. So here is the view from 10,000 feet about what presidents can do. What powers do they have under the Constitution? And how do we know what powers they have? So the text of the Constitution actually isn't very clear about presidents' powers. I, I should say there are some people who think it's crystal clear, but they disagree with each other about what it means. Uh, so Article 2 of the Constitution says the president has the executive power. That might be just sort of a chapter title. Article 2, the executive branch. Or it might be actually a grant of power to do whatever it is the executive power means. Big bone of contention. When you get to more specific powers, there are a few that really stand out. Uh, and one is commander in chief of the military. Right, so the president gets to tell the generals what to do. That's our sort of civilian control. Um, the Constitution says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So as the term executive power indicates, one of the things the president does is execute laws that Congress has made. The president has broad power, according to some people, unlimited power, uh, over appointing judges and uh, significant government officers. Uh, for a lot of those appointments, the consent of the president of the Senate is required, but not all of them. Judges, yes, but not all executive officers. There are big fights over just how much power the president has. For example, could the president directly fire Mueller, or does the president need to get the attorney general to do it? Uh, and then. Finally, there is an oath to support and defend the Constitution, which presidents, including Lincoln, have said gives them broad power to do things that are needed to protect and defend the Constitution. There are a bunch of other littler things, some of them which seem very minor, like the president has the power to require uh, the heads of cabinet departments to give written opinions about things. The president has the power to receive ambassadors, which has been interpreted to mean a lot of power over foreign affairs. But that's sort of the, the language. It's pretty short, much shorter than the section about Congress and its powers. And people have been fighting over it ever since George Washington took the oath of office, almost literally. It, it took only a year or two before Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison were fighting with each other over presidential power. But anyway, that's what we have to work with in terms of constitutional text. What about the history? A lot of people believe that original understanding should control constitutional law. Other people don't think that, but they do think it's relevant. So what do we know about the original understanding that the founding 
fathers or founding parents uh, had about the powers of the president? And the answer is honestly not much, except by implication. The reason is that they didn't talk about it very much. Uh, there were just a lot of other things that were on their plate that seemed a lot more pressing. And they also knew that the first president would be George Washington, and they all trusted George, right? So, so for a, a number of reasons, they just didn't really talk about it. So we don't know, did they all share a common understanding that they didn't talk about? Uh, there are a few little wisps of discussion here and there about the president's powers. People read those like tea leaves and try to figure out some, something bigger, but it's very hard to tell. Um, and we think of the president as this awesomely powerful uh, office, which it is today, but back for parts of the 19th century, there were all those presidents whose names you can't remember. And the reason you can't remember them is that they were just one step above being errand boys for Congress, right? They were not they, they were weak politically. Congress was very powerful. It had extremely powerful leadership. And presidents, it's not like it was nothing to be president. It's always, people have always wanted that office. It's always kind of a big deal, but nothing like today. Um, and over time, that has changed. Uh, I would say, really, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, 100 and some years ago. Uh, and in the 20th century and 21st century, we've seen more or less a steady increase in presidential power with a few glitches along the way. After Watergate, there was some retrenchment and so on. But basically, presidents throughout this sort of modern period uh, have either exercised or assumed, whichever you prefer, a lot of authority. One thing that seems clear is the presidential power is especially broad when you're not inside the US. So anything to do with foreign affairs, anything to do with national security, as that's also an area where presidents get a lot of leeway, but especially if it's outside the US. Right, so those are the areas where presidents have the broadest scope, and one of the issues has been Everything kind of affects foreign affairs and national security. I mean, we've seen the president put uh, uh, steel tariffs on steel from Canada on the basis of national security. So how do you draw a line? And when should courts step in? That's been a big issue. So today, when courts approach these issues, when the president has done something that's being challenged, they use a three-part test. Uh, so there are three categories. The first category is where the president does something and Congress authorized it, right? There's a statute that says the president can do X and that's what the president did. And in those, in those cases, the president's power is broadest because the president is combining the constitutional power of the presidency plus the constitutional power of Congress. Now there's still some limitations, but they're smaller. The third category are those where Congress says no and the president says yes. Or Congress says yes and the president says no. And in those categories, in that category of cases, the president's power is the weakest. 
because all the president can rely on are the powers that are kind of specifically and clearly granted in the Constitution. And then there's this middle area where Congress really hasn't spoken directly to the issue one way or the other. Um, and in those cases, courts kind of punt to a certain extent. Uh, they also tend to look at whether the president is doing something that you know, has been done a lot and that Congress has either given the nod to or at least um, tolerated over a long period of time. So those are the most difficult cases probably for the courts. Now the case that established this test is called the Steel Seizure Case, um, and it goes back to Harry Truman. Uh, during the Korean War, the, there was a threatened strike in the steel mills. Um, it, it, the Korean War probably doesn't live as much in American memory as either World War II or Vietnam, but it was a very serious, you know, very major war. Um, and the concern was that if the steel mills went on strike, then there would be no steel to make all the things you need to have to fight a modern war. The Supreme Court, um, and I think it's kind of interesting, I think essentially everybody on the court had been appointed by a Democrat by then, just because uh, uh, the Democrats had been in the White House since 1932, so you know, quite a long time. Uh, they held it illegal. And the reason they held it illegal, at least according to the opinion that everybody follows today, was that Congress really had kind of said no. Congress provided another way for the president to settle labor management disputes or at least put them on hold if there was a threat to the national economy or the national interest. Congress did not authorize this. In fact, it was proposed they didn't pass it. And so the court said, no, you can't do this. You've got the commander-in-chief power, but uh, as the uh, Justice Jackson, who wrote the opinion I'm talking about, said, the president is commander-in-chief over the Army and the Navy, but not everybody else. Um, he had a great way with words. Uh, so steel seizure indicates how thinking about limitations on presidential power can also protect individual rights. Now, for many of us, the individual right of the steel company to run its own business may not be an individual right that we feel strongly about. I mean, this is Berkeley. Uh, but nevertheless, if the president can do that, what else could the president seize? And what could he do with the stuff that was seized? So this, I think, and I think the court was really worried about that more than the individual case. The idea that if they didn't draw a line somewhere, presidents would really pretty much just start governing by decree. So let me talk a little bit about the president and individual rights. Uh, at least until recently, the most high profile cases uh, involved the Bush administration. Uh, uh, soon after 9-11, President Bush issued some executive orders. Uh, and the executive orders, at least in some people's view, were, were actually trying to create a kind of legal black hole where the people subject to the orders would have no legal rights. So one of the things that uh, President Bush said was 
that the military or the government could detain uh, people who were working in connection with Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Uh, and Al-Qaeda had been in Afghanistan, so there was some sort of linkage. Um, and when they detained them, they could ship them to Guantanamo Bay. That's a Navy base on Cuba. When uh, we, the US sort of held Cuba for a while after the Spanish-American War, and when we gave it up, we insisted on keeping this naval base. So it's outside the United States, but it's been under US control forever. Uh, you know, 80 years, something. And it's an indefinite, it's a uh, permanent lease, so it's almost like we own it. But it's not inside the US, and there was some World War II precedent that said that really people who were foreigners, who were, or maybe even citizens who were being held outside the US, didn't really have any rights to go to the court, let alone to vindicate any of their positions. So there was some pretty good precedent from World War II. Of course, a very different time, different issues. Um, and if you look historically, courts are very reluctant to overrule the president in wartime. Or uh, you can debate whether this really ought to be considered a war, but at least a lot of people thought it was the equivalent of a war, the war on terror. And pre uh, courts have been very deferential as indicated by those World War II cases. They were just not going to tell President Roosevelt that he couldn't do things he thought were necessary for national security. And I think one of the reasons for that is you would just hate to be wrong and have some terrible thing happen, another 9-11 in this case, or I don't know, an invasion or whatever, uh, attacks on Americans just because you stepped in the way of the president. Also, as a sort of political science matter, presidents have a lot of public support in these conditions, and the court may be reluctant to risk its institutional standing by going head to head with the president during war. There's always the chance that the president will just ignore them and say, sorry, this is a war. Much as I respect and love the Supreme Court, I can't let them, I can't let the country go down the tubes. So that was the situation in these post 9-11 cases. What happened? Well, there are actually three Supreme Court cases. There are some more, but three big ones. So the first case, which was the biggest surprise, was that the Supreme Court said that we can hear cases they said the president could detain people under those circumstances, including even US citizens. There were a couple of people who had been detained who were at least had been born in the US, although I don't think any of them had lived uh, you know, more than a brief period in the US after they were born. But they were citizens. But the court said, you have to give them due process. You can't just hold them forever until you decide to let them go you have to give them a hearing at which they can establish, in which you have to show evidence that they fit within one of these categories. They really were um, involved with one of these groups, and they were uh, conducting actions that were Ill illegal. We have all this stuff, partly the Hague Conventions, partly post-Nuremberg things, et cetera, that make certain things 
illegal in wartime. So you kind of have to show that they're violating something like that. Or at least some US law. So that was a big shock to the Bush administration. They had been really confident that they were going to win this case, that the court was going to say that this was outside the US, they had no jurisdiction, and even if they did, this was presidential authority. Um, only one justice on the Supreme Court really bought the very broad theory of presidential authority that um, Bush was claiming, um, and that was Justice Thomas. Now, in a second case, these were all five to four. So in the second case, the court held that if you were going to actually punish anyone for violating the laws of war, you had to follow the Geneva Conventions. And the Geneva Conventions basically mean you have to have a real trial, as the court interpreted it. You have to give the same kind of trial that the military would give one of its own people. Now, there's an old joke that military justice is to justice as military music is to music. Um, but actually, the military lawyers have been working really hard for at least a number of decades to try to get past the joke and to make it a real legitimate system of justice. And in fact, a lot of them were very unhappy and pushed back on Bush's executive orders, which I think that kind of conflict within the executive branch is something we don't talk about in constitutional law because it's not courts, but it can still make a real difference. And then finally, Congress passed a statute that was trying to keep these people from having full access to the US courts. It gave very limited access uh, so courts could have some rule, but it would be a much more limited rule than they would normally have in hearing a case about somebody who's been punished or detained. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's unconstitutional. Right, so in all these cases, you could say the court should have pushed harder. Maybe they should have said all the detentions were illegal because they weren't specifically authorized by Congress. You know, they could have gone farther on these, or that you can't at least uh, detain US citizens without a criminal trial and charges, but they went a lot farther than anyone really thought they would, and it was very frustrating for the Bush people. So that brings me to the current era, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about the immigration ban. I probably don't have to say too much about the facts because it's so recent um, and it was probably sort of hard to avoid hearing about it, uh, even if you didn't want to. Um, so the basic facts are Trump during the presidential campaign and afterwards made a lot of anti-Muslim comments and said he was going to cut off all Muslims from entering the US and maybe deport everybody who was already here. Um, Fairly soon after he took office, he issued an executive order cutting off uh, basically all immigration from a list of countries, all of which were majority Muslim. Um, and that went to court. And the Supreme Court never heard it, but the lower courts all said 
that's unconstitutional because it's clearly, you don't have a good real, you don't really have a rationale for why you're doing this except that you don't like Muslims and religious discrimination is not acceptable under the Constitution. That's sort of what the lower court said. So as soon as they got sort of slammed on this one, they went back to the drawing board. The first one had been written by Steve Bannon or Steve Miller or somebody like that who was not, you know, really on top of this stuff. So they tried again and they took that one to court. And again, they, it, was, it was a little bit, I would say as a lawyer, it was a little bit better. Uh, it made a little bit better case. But again, they got knocked down, right? So they go back a third time. And the third time they really lawyer up. Right, so they come up with a much more complete explanation of what they're doing and why this is supposed to be justified by national security, which really they didn't have before. They included a couple of non-Muslim countries. Uh, Venezuela was one, I can't remember the other one. Um, and so they tried, you know, they did everything they could to make it look like, no, this is legitimate national security concerns because these people are not really screened. There's, you know, conditions in these countries are very bad, and you know we don't know what kinds of terrorist activities are going on there, etc. And it also excluded Iraq under a lot of pressure from the military because the military had promised all kinds of people who were helping us that they would be resettled here, and the Pentagon was very upset. If the, uh, about the idea of the president backing off from those promises. So this again goes into the courts. What happens? Well, in the lower courts, two different courts of appeals. I guess I'll come to that. Let me back up first. So in the lower courts, two different courts of appeals ruled that it was still illegal. One of them on statutory grounds. They said that the immigration laws didn't allow it and one on the same kind of constitutional grounds that, um, as before. Goes up to the Supreme Court uh, and it's argued, everybody's watching very closely. What happens? A majority of the court, five to four, upholds the order. Okay, so why? Um, well, I don't know if I can totally tell you why, because only, only those justices presumably know for sure. What they said was, normally we wouldn't even look at anything outside an immigration order like this. We would just look at the order. If it looked appropriate, that would be the end of it. But in this case, we're willing to look outside at all the various tweets and stuff to see if it's a legitimate justification. So we won't we won't decide if we agree with the order, we won't decide what the president's motives really were, but at least we'll take a harder look than we normally would to see if, if this is really justified on the basis of national security rather than something bad. So kind of a compromise there, kind of weak in terms of um, actually uh, keeping an eye on the president. Um, on the other hand, at least I think there's some hints in the opinion that they might not have upheld the first two orders, same majority, that, that those orders, the justification just wasn't presented well enough uh, to, to make the cut. But applying their standard of, what's, 
a plausible national security rationale, they decided it was. And that it wasn't clear from this order that it was based on anything bad. We had these two non-Muslim uh, countries. We had Iraq excluded. Of course, it had never included people from Saudi Arabia or some other uh, Pakistan, some other Muslim countries. Um, and the court said, okay, passes the smell test. And that's all we're looking for here. Uh, opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, joined by, uh, the only thing people weren't sure about going into this case was how would Justice Kennedy rule. And Justice Kennedy wrote this sort of concurring opinion, sort of clearing his throat and saying, oh, this is really something we need to worry about, blah, 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 but going along. There were, I think, some unusually strongly worded dissenting opinions from the four liberals. Some of them are not all that liberal, but that's how we refer to them on the court. Um, and they criticize the majority, I think, on two basic grounds. One is, yes, if this was the first thing the president had done and we didn't know anything else about the previous attempts, we might say, yeah, this looks fine. But we do know about the previous attempts, which were blatantly, or at least more blatantly, discriminatory. And how you know, the court's just closing its eyes to that. Um, and they also said the court is just ignoring just how much evidence of bias we have here and just how extreme it is. And it even continued after. Some people were saying, some lower court judges, oh, well, you know, people say anything during a campaign that doesn't, you know, basically they for, that doesn't affect anything after they're elected. They just forget all that and start fresh. Um, and some of these statements were after the election and at, even after he took office. And the majority said, the minority said, how can you close your eyes to reality? There's some very strong language, as I mentioned, Justice Breyer, uh, who is a very moderate justice. He'd been a law professor. His prose is usually tends toward the boring side. Uh, <laughs> He's not somebody to engage in flashy rhetoric or accuse the um, majority of doing horrible, horrible things if he's in dissent, very you know, sort of studious. But he wasn't in this case. He said, this is just like Korematsu. Korematsu was the big Japanese internment case from World War II, another case where the Supreme Court upheld Roosevelt after he um, essentially ordered that uh, both um, First, uh, both Japanese immigrants and their children would all be rounded up uh, and held in these camps because there was worry on the West Coast that they would somehow be collaborating with the Japanese. It turned out in retrospect that actually there was no evidence. Uh, the, I, I, some people dispute this, but it seems pretty clear that the government just lied. Um, maybe not the government lawyers because they may have been taken in, but. Uh, or at least some of them may have, but it, there just wasn't any evidence there. And so uh, this has always been considered a real black mark on the Supreme Court that they went along with this. Um, and Breyer said this is just the same. You're biased against a group. You don't have any real national security thing, and you're going after them. 
the majority did say, for the first time, Korematsu was a terrible decision. It's overruled. But we think this case is different because these are people who are not inside the US. Uh, none of them are American citizens. And um, in addition, um, this is a m much more carefully designed order. You know, take, take that as you will. So I do think the dissenters had a compelling argument that the majority opinion was ignoring reality. I mean, I really, I find it hard to believe that anybody, whatever their view of Trump is, positive or negative, would think that he waited until he read all his top secret information about the security threats and then he made up his mind, right? I mean, he had made his position clear during the campaign. People voted for him, and that's what he was doing. Um, can you say anything for the majority opinion? Well, courts have given presidents lots of leeway in national security, and they tend to enforce constitutional rights less strongly in immigration cases. So you can't say it's like completely unprecedented to do that, even apart from Korematsu, which nobody wants to rely on. So there's that. And then I think there's also, it would not have just been a matter of overruling the president, right? It would have been a matter of, we're overruling the president because the president and his lawyers are now lying to us about his intentions. And maybe Justice Kennedy or others on the court just weren't willing to throw down the gauntlet like that. As I say, we don't really know what they were thinking. Um, probably some mixture of those things. Uh, conceivably, although I hope not, some of them were thinking, yeah, Trump was right. We should keep all these people out. I don't really believe that about uh, anyone on the court, uh, or at least I don't want to believe it. But anyway, that's how the case came out. So. What do we take away from all this, plus you know the other 5,000 pages or 50,000 pages of people of stuff people have written about the presidency? Um, so first is, even though presidents have asked for a blank check, they've never quite gotten it. The court has never said, no, if the president says so, that's the end of it. Presidents can do what they want. Even in national security cases, even in wartime. But courts are also reluctant to push too hard. I think partly out of genuine belief, you know, people have had a sort of reverence for the presidency. Our national leader, elected by the people, uh, knows about all this top secret stuff the rest of us don't know about, has to make all these hard decisions. You know, these people all look about. 30 years older by the time they get done being president. We don't want to, you know, that we're not going to try to do that job ourselves. And then I think there is real worry about um, maintaining the court's institutional capital uh, in a way that might be difficult if the, if the president, and especially if the president gets backed up by Congress, just says, well, say what you want. You know, you justices, it's very nice. We've taken it under respectful consideration for a minute, and we're not going to do it. Well, then what? Right? 
So I think the court does worry about those things, although they rarely admit it. So I think the upshot of all this is the court just isn't really consistent in these cases over time, right? The, the, some cases the court jumps in more firmly than others, uh, as they did in the terrorism cases, but they really kind of backed away. Maybe not as much as they might have. They could have just said, hey, this is immigration. These people are outside our borders, and the president can decide who comes in the country. They did not do that. But they did give the president an awful lot of leeway in a situation where it was pretty clear he was abusing that leeway. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying not to be partisan, but <laughs> at least I think it was pretty clear. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about, or at least mention, is especially lawyers, but other people, uh, I think, also think of constitutional law as something the courts do and the Supreme Court does more than anyone else. And there's a lot of constitutional law that happens outside of the courts. Um, you know, some of it happens inside the executive branch when people like those military lawyers say, no, we don't agree with that, we won't go along. You know, and we will pub publicly let people know that the military does not support this. So sometimes it's that, sometimes it's pushback from Congress, but in this case, we've had a president and Congress from the same party, so we haven't seen as much of that. Sometimes it's public opinion. Um, and to the extent that the court is worried about maintaining its standing or maybe the limits of the kind of judgment that the, it can pass under the separation of powers, we're not limited that way, right? We are entitled to say, no, we're gonna make our own judgment about what's constitutional. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, the public has to be in, involved, right? Because when the Supreme Court acts, the president has a president who's convinced of the rightness of what he's doing. Um, I would say or she, but we're yet to see that. Um, is likely to think it's still really important to do it regardless of these pointy-headed judges. It's the question of what, what will the public say if you disobey the court? What will Congress say? Which depends a lot on the public. That's the ultimate check that makes things happen. So, uh, you know, I think with respect to all this stuff, plus many, many other actions, say in the last couple of years, it's up to us to make up our own minds. So I think I did pretty well, actually, on sticking to my time schedule. I, uh, as my former students can testify, I sometimes do run a little bit over. But I think I, I, think I was pretty close this time. So let me just <laughs> open it up for Q&A. Great, I don't have to call on anyone. Oh. <laughs> um, you were speaking about um, issues during war and or immigration, and you know, with the Japanese internment, that seems to have come together. I, I was wondering if you could speak towards the waterboarding, that, was, that one aspect, just how that played out, because you know, even there was a Senator yeah. Bill McCain who really was just right. outraged by yeah. how that played out. So that never really got decided by the courts. They kept finding excuses not to really 
you know, the people were not available to bring lawsuits or, you know, one thing or another. Um, the, there was a big question about whether it was uh, prohibited by law. Uh, and the Bush people were very concerned about that because there's an anti-torture law that sort of der derives from an international treaty. And it's a criminal offense. And they were really worried that, yeah, we can do this now, but Democrats come in, they might come after us. So we better make sure we've got some justification for why we're not violating the statute. There is a UC Berkeley professor, um, still one of my colleagues, uh, who helped write those opinions, yes, and said, no, uh, it's technically not covered by the torture prohibition. Senator McCain did not like that. And I think under his uh, pressure, uh, Congress passed a law that said that uh, the military can't do that. I mean, it wasn't limited to waterboarding, but it was basically the military is limited in its interrogation techniques, and they can't engage in these sort of extreme methods, whether or not they're actually torture. Um, there is kind of a loophole, because it just says the military, not the CIA. Um, but still, it, it went a long way. And then I think at some point, people maybe in the CIA and elsewhere started having second thoughts about this, too. Um, so, at least as far as we know, they're not doing that anymore. Um, but we can't be sure because if they're doing it, we might not know. Um, yeah, I'm back. I was wondering if you were asked to force rank everything President Trump has done since he came in, in terms of threats to our constitutional ideas. What, what in, in your mind, what's the worst thing he's done? What's the, you've talked here mostly about immigration, but I'm thinking, you hear the word abuse of power all the time mentioned in reference to Trump. How true is that? So, but tell us the number one worst thing he's done. Oh gosh. <laughs> That's like an impossible <laughs> task, at least for me. Um, I think so. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of areas where Trump has violated at least the norms of what, in you know, the modern era, we expect presidents to do or not do. Um, though not necessarily any hard and fast law. Um, I, for me, uh, I think the abuse of national security as a justification for things like tariffs against Canada, uh, just because there's a statute that says the president has this power to do it on the basis of national security, so okay, we'll say it's national security. I think that's a real abuse. Um, and I think also, again, in the foreign affairs area, the sort of attitude of indifference toward our treaty obligations um, is another area where I think um, that's a cl clear abuse of power. I mean, there are, I, you know, I think there are, I mean, I, if people have other examples they want to talk about, I'm happy to do that. I'm, I'm, um, I could have brought a list, I guess, but I didn't think to. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, all presidents are accused of their opponents of abuse of power, right? So 
And, and so things kind of flip, right? So the Democrats accused Bush of abuse of power, and then the Republicans accused Obama, and now we're back to the Democrats. And I try not to, you know, to try to take, think about, am I taking a position that I would be willing to take even against a president who I really think highly of? Or is it just that I don't really you know, like this president? Um, and then the other way around. So with Obama, I guess I'm giving away my leanings. But with Obama, I would think, yeah, OK, he's doing it, uh, or Lincoln for that matter. But the, you know, what about other presidents who I don't agree with? Uh, what do I think about that? Uh, I don't know. Other, yeah, I'm sure some other things will come to me. Uh, thank you, Professor, for your very informative uh, discussion. Uh, you, you spoke a lot about how courts are deciding finally what the executive powers are. But uh, our Constitution is supposed to check and balance all divisions. What about the con Congress and legislative branch? What are their powers and how can they control the president's powers? Uh, the pr the Congress has a lot of powers. They're not unlimited. There are some things under that category three uh, um, of where the president can still do something even if Congress says no. But that's fairly limited. So what can Congress do? Well, first they can pass a law that says the president can't do that. right? And that won't always work, but it will quite a bit. They can hold hearings. They can't probably call the president as a witness or at least there's been an understanding that they won't. But they can call a lot of people you know, a step down and make their lives miserable, right? I mean, I can hardly, I've just watched a few hearings on TV. And you know, it's just like some senator or con member of Congress is just going on and on and on about how terrible you are, and you're not allowed to say anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, so they can do that. Um, uh, something that is uh, very powerful legally um, is they can cut off funding. The, now, there's some things the president might do that doesn't, don't require funding, right? Going on Twitter. Um, but uh, but um, probably can't keep the president from talking to foreign leaders. But almost everything else. The Constitution says uh, that the government can't spend any money except if it's been appropriated by Congress. So if Congress doesn't give the money, or if Congress specifically says, here's some money, but you can't use it for X, that's pretty much the end of it. Um, now, sometimes it's harder to do that than others, either politically or because it's hard to kind of specify what money could be used for what. But but that's a very powerful tool. And then finally, Congress has the power of impeachment. Uh, the House of Representatives can impeach. And then the Senate can convict. Uh, technically, I think it's sort of a silly point. But lawyers are fond of pointing out that technically, impeachment is just what the House does, um, which is true. But really, who cares? Um, <laughs> They can do that. Now, there have been uh, major impeachment efforts that got to the Senate for 
Andrew Johnson at the end of the Civil War uh, and against Bill Clinton. Uh, neither of them was convicted. There was no formal impeachment by the House against Richard Nixon, but it's generally believed by historians that there surely would have been um, and that he might well have been convicted by the Senate, but he resigned. So we really have three cases where it's come up uh, historically. Uh, so how, I mean, that's hard to do. It takes a two-thirds vote in the Senate which almost inevitably, except for just a few years under Roosevelt, would require you to have uh, some members of the opposition party or the president's party voting for it. Uh, like right now, it would take, uh, I think, 15 Democrats uh, in the Senate as it's constituted now. I mean, not 15 Democrats, all the Democrats, 15 Republicans, to, uh, to do it. So it's not exactly easy. The courts probably will not review those cases. So if Congress really has pretty much the final word there. Uh, and it's, you know, it's sort of the nuclear weapon, the atomic bomb in this situation, right? I think there are other things that they can do too that are kind of more subtle, just sort of pressuring agency heads that, you know, uh, we may not pass anything, but if you want to get a decent budget from us, for your pet project, we're not going to give it to you unless, you know, things like that. We have seen much less of that in the last two years uh, because not only have, do we have unified government with Congress controlled by uh, the Republicans, but the Republicans are, in Congress all seem to be fairly terrified of a primary challenge if they cross Trump. So they're been, I mean, there have been exceptions for sure, and Congress has actually even passed some things that limit the president. But they've been very, very cautious about doing it. They, and they have not done much oversight of uh, government agencies uh, either. Uh, so it's been a very weak Congress for a variety of, I think, political reasons um, in the last couple of years. But who knows about the future? I mean, it, you know, the, I mean, it, it might depend on the merits of what happens, and it might also depend on whether at some point they're more worried about losing the general election than they are about losing the primary. That's sort of my somewhat cynical take. I'm interested in using, in the use of <clears throat> the claim of national security for imposing tariffs. <clears throat> Is there a way to challenge that claim? I don't think we know. The, um, so there are a couple levels to that question. One is uh, the treaties themselves, which I know a little bit about, but I'm not an expert. So I think all the trade agreements, including the WTO, have a sort of uh, opt-out clause for national security. And the idea behind that really is if you think your national security is at stake, you're going to do it regardless of trade law. So why should we get in front of the bus right, and get knocked over? Um, in general, tribun trade tribunals have said, we're not going to question those national security claims. But then 
governments don't make a lot of them either. And they tend to make them in situations where it looks pretty plausible. Right? We're not going to allow the export of something because uh, it could be used to make fissionable material. Right? Uh, things like that. So you, know, you might disagree about are they doing it exactly the right way and stuff, but it looks pretty legitimate. As far as I know, um, and again, I don't really know what other countries might have done, but I think Trump's use of national security in this context is pretty unparalleled, and I think he is being challenged in some of the trade tribunals. Now, there's also the question of domestic law, but I think the statutes are pretty broad. Again, it's a real question, will the courts look beyond what the president has said in order to determine if there's some kind of legitimate national security claim? Uh, and tariffs, again, are another area where the courts have you know, generally said it's up to Congress um, and the president on tariffs. So I think it could be, maybe, but it's just very hard to challenge as the presidents in situations where the Congress has said, you can do X on the basis of national security because we don't usually want to accuse the president of just making stuff up. So you could forbid the importation of popcorn on the basis of national security? I would say in terms of what a court would do, there's a good chance the answer to that is yes. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's still an abuse of power, right? Even if, even if you can't get a court or even a trade tribunal to intervene. Uh, I don't think it's a sure thing that it would be upheld. I think for the WTO, it's just got to be or a NAFTA tribunal. You know, it would be awfully tempting to say no. But then again, there's the problem that if you do, maybe Trump just walks out of the WTO completely, and then you've got even less leverage than you had before. So I don't know. Um, it really, no, it, I don't think it ever occurred to anybody that you would have this sort of sweeping use of national security claims in situations where it's really kind of hard to see. I mean, Canada? So are there movements in the courts now to, um, to look into these you know, broad sweeping? I think cases have been brought. Uh, I don't think they've progressed that much. There, I mean, there's been a lot of litigation about the Trump administration. Maybe more, you know, there's always a lot of litigation, but uh, um, on, on both constitutional grounds and non-constitutional grounds. Uh, for example, uh, there's a really interesting, two really interesting cases, but uh, they may not agree with each other, um, in the courts about the emoluments clause. And, okay, so I'm seeing heads nod. Uh, I'm not sure anyone would have even known what the emoluments clause was uh, until recently. But right, the idea is that it prohibits Trump from taking um, things from either foreign governments or uh, from state governments, as it turns out, um, and that his hotels and other business operations have done that. There's some dispute about just how broad that clause is, and there's a lot of dispute about whether anyone has standing or whether the courts can decide it, but that litigation is still ongoing, and I, you know, at least one lower court has ruled uh, in favor uh, against Trump on this. 
Um, so if he had to like spin off hotels and things like that, that would certainly be a major um, um, blow, I think, just you know, for him personally, not to the presidency. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, one of the things that the uh, administration did was try to delay almost all of the rules that the Obama administration had done on subjects like climate change, which is something I do a lot of work on. And the courts ha generally have said, no, you can't do that. You don't have statutory authority, right? If you want to get rid of a rule, you got to go through a whole big process that's going to take you a year or two years. Uh, you can't just shortcut it by saying we're indefinitely putting it on hold. So I think we are seeing some real pushback. On the other hand, uh, my guess, my worry is Trump's appointing a lot of judges, and the Senate has been rushing them through, with only a very few turned back after they've been nominated. Um, and by and large, they are very, very conservative. Uh, and. We don't really know, as the makeup of the judiciary changes, whether they're going to change their view uh, on some of these issues. And you know, what's going to happen to the Supreme Court with a uh, um, five solid, six five solid conservative votes, right? And six if something happens to Justice Ginsburg um, or Breyer, who's the second youngest. Uh, so. So I think the courts are at this point mostly, you know, trying to play it straight, maybe with some irritation at what seems to be abuse of power, but we just can't be sure uh, whether that will continue. Um, I, you know, I think pretty good for the if he, for the next two years probably. If there's a second term, who knows. Right, which is one reason why your constitutional judgments matter. Because you know, Congress has all these various powers, but we have the ability to vote, uh, at least if we have sufficient ID uh, in some states. Yeah. I was wondering if the president has the authority to pardon themselves if they ever needed to. So. As far as I can tell, there is like a zero precedent for that. Um, I even precedent with, I don't even know of, say, governors who have, but they have the pardon power too for state law. I don't know of, I think I would have heard just because it's an issue. So we don't know. There's some con law scholars on both sides. I think the answer is clearly no. My, myself, yeah. Yeah. So, do we know what that is that is that for the Navy and all that other stuff instead of generally? Um, so it probably means he can't pardon you from the impeachment. So that is from being kicked out. But probably still could pardon for federal criminal offenses. But there's a whole bunch of issues, right? So can the president pardon himself? Um, I just think it's a ridiculous idea, basically. But you know, uh, but you know, who knows? Uh, uh, but if you look at the reasons they gave the president the pardon power, it doesn't really seem to apply to the president doing self-pardon. Um, 
can, given that the Constitution gives the uh, president the pardon power, could use of the pardon power be obstruction of justice, or is that just something that nobody can question? Uh, again, no, I don't think there's any precedent. I could imagine that there might have been a, in a state level pardon, but I, at least I don't know of anything. Again, we're in uncharted territory here. Uh, I, uh, it seems to me that the Constitution specifically says members of Congress cannot be prosecuted for their official acts. There's something called the speech and debate clause. There is no such clause for the president, so I would argue that those could still be. But again, you know, uh, as uh, Justice Brennan, one of the great liberal judges, has reputedly said, with five votes, you can do anything uh, out of nine. So anyway, I don't think that's quite true, by the way. Uh, or at least the assumption that you can find five justices who are willing to do anything um, uh, at all, you know, everything, anything. Um, but we don't know, right? Uh, uh, you know, we could end up with lengthy litigation, et cetera. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that the president cannot pardon for state crimes. So if just to take a random example, the Attorney General of New York were to find that there had been violations of New York law somewhere along the way. The president can't do anything about that. And again, big issue, can you indict a sitting president? Again, no precedent for that. Either way. Justice Department has always said no, or always. For the times when they've been asked, they've said no, but then they work for the president. So how much weight can you give that? You can make arguments both ways based on cases dealing with somewhat related topics, and so we don't know the answer to that either. I mean, the one thing you can say for Trump is he has, is raising a lot of really interesting legal issues. Uh, it's a good time to be a law professor. <laughs> At least in that sense, right? Uh, I have a question about uh, the usage of the uh, President Trump's on Twitter, uh, because um, first is the freak, how frequency he used it, and the second is uh, his opinion on it. Um, because compared with the CEO of a public company, they usually um, carefully make public statement uh, or the their opinion or something, um, or how they look about the future. Uh, because the president is some kind of the representative of the country, and uh, so do you think it's appropriate or um, it's better to have some limit on, on this kind of issue? Um, well, I think it's better to have some limit, right? Uh, I don't know that there's a way of putting a legal limit on it, maybe. Uh, but I think uh, presidents can cause a lot of problems, even put aside what you think of the president, just by spur of the moment saying something, right? And then they don't realize when they're saying it that this is deathly offensive to some foreign country because nobody, you know, 
they just didn't know. Uh, or, you know, I don't know, it contradicts something the government's already doing, or who knows what. It's classified, you know. So presidents are usually very careful about off-the-cuff remarks. Uh, and, pres and Trump, now that, that tends to make their official communications less fun. Um, Obama used Twitter, but the Twitter things were all kind of official statements. Uh, so yes, I think it, it's very imprudent uh, for the, I, I feel ridiculous saying that uh, in this situation, but yes, it's very imprudent, I think. Um, there's an interesting legal question about whether uh, Trump's Twitter account is private or public. People who have been blocked from the account have brought First Amendment cases saying that the president can't block them because it's a public forum. Uh, and that's in the courts. The White House has sometimes referred to uh, Trump's tweets as official statements uh, because the downside is if they're just personal, he could be sued for libel. Uh, I think that it is a public forum and that the court should rule that there's a First Amendment right to comment on the public forum. But, um, and I'm somewhat more confident that the courts would uphold that, but not 100%. Again, don't have any real precedent. Even if Obama blocked somebody on Twitter, just never got any attention. And I don't know if Obama ever did. Right, it just wasn't a big issue. And then before Obama, I don't know, did they even have Twitter? <laughs> One more, thank you. Um, I need clarification on basically executive orders. I know as Congress's power to get things done has diminished, the president, presidents have used executive orders more and more. How, how does that fit in the balance of power? Can somebody trump a Trump executive order? Or Yeah. So most executive orders are really in the nature of memos to federal agencies. Right? So except they're public and you know highlighted. So for example, Trump issued a bunch of environmental executive orders that were all basically saying, Scott Pruitt, I want you to look into this and do something. But I won't tell you exactly what because it's your call. Um, there are a lot of orders like that. There are some, so most executive orders don't really do anything legally. Uh, the exceptions are things where the president really does have an independent right to act, like the immigration orders. Uh, there are also some military, they're not really counted as executive orders for some reason, but there are military orders that the president can issue to the, you know, armed services, those, as long as they're not inconsistent with law, are probably valid, but they don't affect people outside of the military. Um, most of the rest of it is really just a way of the president saying very publicly, here's what I think, right? I mean, they could, a lot of the orders with uh, dealing with environmental stuff or other things could have picked up the phone and done the same thing. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of his orders were some, not all of them, and there was a lot of dispute about some of them, about uh, um, the uh, DACA 
uh, and uh, DAPA orders and whether he could do those or was it, ex it or, or was it contrary to the immigration laws to do those? And the courts, Supreme Court split evenly uh, on one of those issues. So all of those issues, it, most of it, it's sort of garden variety, not constitutional stuff directly, but did you violate the law? Did you have the legal power to issue that order? But a lot of them are really just don't, e don't even pretend to. You know, they're just like internal to the executive branch. Um, and nothing will really happen until somebody lower down than the president actually issues something that you can take to court. Yeah, so yeah, that's very misleading. And, and that was also true of Obama uh, in many situations, right? He used executive orders to, and Clinton, I know, Bush, you know, to prod agencies to get them to do something and make it clear that it's a priority uh, to maybe mobilize public support. But the order itself doesn't necessarily have any legal, it could be called a memo. And in fact, there are memos that ha actually have legal effect and executive orders that don't. So it's not a magic term. Contrary to what some people in the White House might think. Uh, well, this has been great, and um, Professor Farmer, I have one more question for you. Okay, um, just in just thinking ahead to say if Judge Kavanaugh is pushed through, mm -hmm. and then this these cases get you know really dug into and things get proven with certain you know the allegations that are out. I'm sorry, uh, if. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court, and then after he's confirmed, some of these allegations are actually investigated, and he is found guilty or anything like that. Can he be removed? So I think the answer is yes. The, the reason I'm hesitating a little bit is that impeachment is, I think the answer is yes. Um, I mean, the question really only is, can you impeach someone for something they did before they were in office? And I think there are precedents. We don't have judicial precedents for this stuff, but there are precedents of the Senate doing that in the case of federal judges uh, based on misconduct before they were in office. So I think the answer is yes. Uh, and then presumably if there were a criminal prosecution, uh, that would raise other kinds of issues. But I think, as far as I know, nobody's argued that that justices are immune from indictment. Uh, other federal judges definitely are not. Uh, so yeah, something like that could happen. Now, w will it ever happen? I don't know. My crystal ball broke in November of 2016. And I have given up on making predictions. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for coming. Really appreciate it. Fantastic presentation, thank you.